The U.S. Supreme Court has adopted a page from Emily Dickinson, who once wrote, Pardon my sanity in a world insane. In three successive decisions involving abortion, religion, and guns, the nation's highest court has ignored the matting mob and finally restored some sanity to the constitutional principles surrounding those important issues. On abortion, a majority of justices reversed the wrongly decided Roe v. Wade decision from 1973, returning the matter to the states where it belongs. On the Second Amendment, the court struck down a ridiculous New York law that suffocated the right to keep and bear arms for self-defense. On religion, the court affirmed that praying on a public high school football field is not the same thing as the government establishing religion. These well-reasoned decisions marked a return to common sense, a quality that seems strangely alien to the far left. In reaction, they went predictably nuts. The most rabid lost their minds altogether. Their anger turned to mania, which quickly evolved into madness. I'm fine with that. The pharmaceutical industry will have a field day. For the rest of America, though, life will go on, but with a bit more sense and sanity. Attorney, Fox News legal analyst, and two-time New York Times bestselling author. This is The Brief with Greg Jarrett. Hello, everyone. I'm Greg Jarrett. Welcome to The Brief. It was entirely foreseeable that the long-awaited Supreme Court decision in Dobbs would unleash a torrent of denunciations and protests by the usual suspects. Joe Biden claimed it was all Donald Trump's fault and exhorted voters to cast ballots for Democrats in the midterm elections. This was an obvious attempt by the president to distract from his own incompetence in destroying the economy and leaving Americans drowning in a sea of inflationary misery. Ain't gonna work, Joe. Barack Obama, a one-man monument to guile, complained that abortion will now be relegated to the, quote, whims of politicians and ideologues. In other words, people just like Barack Obama. Nancy Pelosi whined that it was outrageous and unprecedented to overturn a case that stood for nearly 50 years. It is neither. The Supreme Court has reversed its own previous decisions more than 230 times since 1810. But by Nancy Pelosi's twisted standard, we'd still be operating under Dred Scott versus Sanford and Plessy versus Ferguson, two of the most dreadful decisions ever handed down by the high court. Plessy's ruling that upheld racial segregation stood for 58 long years before a new set of justices finally came to their senses and tossed it out. But the point is this, the doctrine of respecting precedents known as stare decisis, that's not absolute. It's good until it's not. 
Some, like Harvard Law Professor Alan Dershowitz, condemned the Dobbs decision as judicial activism. That is backwards. The current court's ruling was an act of judicial responsibility. It served as an antidote to the judicial activism of the Roe Court back in 73, which invented a right that does not exist in the Constitution. That was judicial activism run amok. Nowhere in the text, structure, and meaning of the Constitution can a privacy right to abortion be found. It is neither explicit nor implicit. In 1973, a different set of justices simply made it up. For half a century, in a series of related cases challenging the merits of Roe, the court struggled mightily to justify what it had done. Defending the indefensible, that was a challenge. Even the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg expressed serious misgivings. Roe became a symbol, I think, for the right to life movement. They had a single target to hit at. This decision, this most undemocratic decision by nine uh, justices who nobody elected to make policy for the country. My, my criticism of Roe is that it seemed to have stopped the momentum, which was the momentum wasn't on the side of a change. By reversing Roe's misguided reasoning, the Supreme Court has returned the decision-making authority to the states as it was before 1973. This constitutes a restoration of the democratic process, where representatives elected on behalf of the people decide the matter for them in their respective states. If citizens dislike the rules in their states, they're free to change them by voicing their discontent at the ballot box, electing new representatives who pass laws that reflect their views. That is how democracy functions in a constitutional republic. If Americans want to create a national right to abortion, they can do so by composing, passing, and ratifying a constitutional amendment. Nothing stopping them except the will to act upon their convictions. Some have suggested that Congress can simply pass a law codifying the right to abortion nationwide. But that would be problematic for a couple of reasons. First, from a legal standpoint, the Supreme Court has now made it abundantly clear that in reversing Roe, the authority to regulate abortion is returned to the states. So absent an amendment to the Constitution, Congress would be usurping the power of the states by passing a federal statutory law. Second, from a practical standpoint, a federal statute would inevitably be temporary. Once control of Congress and the presidency shifts, the statute would be reversed, and this would create a ping-pong effect that would leave Americans in a chronic state of whiplash as the law careens back and forth to and fro. It's not surprising that some of the most ludicrous commentary has come from the mainstream media that is appallingly biased in its liberal slant. On CNN, legal analyst Jennifer Rogers 
wondered aloud whether states would begin using apps to track menstrual cycles. Seriously, she said that. On NBC, Chuck Todd proclaimed with confidence that the Supreme Court is, quote, now a rigged court. Over on ABC News, legal analyst Terry Moran, who is not, by the way, a lawyer, declared that the era in which the Supreme Court tried to build legitimacy and reach consensus is, quote, over. Moran might want to examine a story published a year ago by his own network, ABC News. It concluded that the current composition of the Supreme Court has issued more bipartisan consensus decisions than in the previous seven years. Indeed, a full 67% of the court's opinions were unanimous or near unanimous. This year's term only reinforced that number. But some journalists never let the facts get in the way of a good story or narrative. The hyperventilating by the media seems designed to gin up the anger and unrest over the Dobbs decision. Of course, that is expected. Journalists and commentators immediately elevated the alarm by predicting that the Supreme Court would abolish other rights, such as contraception and same-sex marriage. That is incorrect, as anyone who actually read the Dobbs majority opinion knows. To his credit, Justice Samuel Lito, who penned the opinion, directly addressed that very issue and foreclosed it. He explained how abortion is different because it involves a higher moral question of human life. Contraception and same-sex marriage are inherently different personal rights derived from and protected by the Constitution. Naturally, such an obvious distinction was lost on the hopelessly obtuse media. Joining me now to discuss all of this, Dr. Adam Carrington, who's a professor of politics and constitutional law at Hillsdale College. He writes on the U.S. Supreme Court regularly for the National Review, the Washington Examiner, and other publications. Professor, great to have you with us. Appreciate it. Glad to join you. Thanks for having me. You know, I got into a bit of a back and forth uh, with uh, Harvard Law professor uh, Alan Dershowitz uh, last Friday after the Dobbs decision came back forth. And, and look, he and I have known each other for 30 years. Terrific guy. I really like him. But he was saying that the court shouldn't have taken up uh, a reversal of Roe versus Wade in the Casey case. Um, and that it, would, it was sort of judicial activism. And it, it, my take is quite different. The litigants uh, that brought the case in Mississippi cited as their authority, Roe versus Wade, and, and the Casey case. It was therefore entirely appropriate for them to reexamine the legitimacy of those two seminal cases. What do you think? I think so. I would say it's the opposite of judicial activism. Activism, I think, is accruing more power to the court and legislating from the bench in a way that the founders never intended the Constitution to do. I think this did the exact opposite by giving up judicial power, by saying we've actually been too activist on this. And I'd also say that I think that, uh, you know, yes, the court should respect precedent. That's maybe what uh, Mr. Dersowicz was thinking. But 
I think that Justice Alito's opinion was very persuasive that the problems with Roe and Casey are classic reasons that you shouldn't continue a precedent as bad as as he proved it to be, that there was no history to the right. Uh, there's all sorts of reasons we could get into why it was poorly reasoned, and it's just not worked. It's exacerbated society's strife about abortion. And so all the reasons you would have to maintain a precedent were undermined fatally over the last 50 years. And I think Alito did a good job of showing that. So no, this was giving up power and this was overturning a precedent that's only been causing problems. Classic reason to do what the court did. Yeah. And I I would probably take it a step further and say, wait a minute, judicial activism wasn't what this court just did in Dobbs. Judicial activism was a very different court back in 1973, 49 years ago in Roe versus Wade. They were inventing a right that exists uh, nowhere in the Constitution. And it seemed at the time that they they were trying to sort of manipulate the Constitution to achieve their desired outcome. Isn't that classic judicial activism? Yeah, because that's the job of legislators and voters voting for their legislators to put your will into law. Uh, this goes back as far as Alexander Hamilton in Federalist 78. He said, courts don't exercise their own will. They exercise judgment and will is to be what the legislative power does. And I think you saw the court in 1973. The reason this has played out so poorly over the last 50 years is they were trying to put their will into law and they were trying to create, as you said, a right out of whole cloth because they thought it was good policy, because they had a view of privacy in a way that's not in the Constitution that they thought would uh, make the country better. But Anytime the court has tried to do that, whether that's Dred Scott back in the 1850s or Lochner in the early 1900s, or again here in Roe versus Wade, the court has stepped on its own foot and it has undermined the process of how we actually are supposed to govern ourselves. And again, this is the third time I gave the other two examples where finally uh, the court has, has has wisely gotten out of the way, either been forced to in the Dred Scott instance or in this and Lochner gotten out of it willingly because they realized that they just weren't supposed to be doing this. This is not their job. I remember in law school more than 40 years ago, we were learning all of these uh, cases historically, and I kept memorizing them only to learn a few days later that, oh, gee, the Supreme Court reversed itself and changed. And and I was completely befuddled. And, and you know, I, I remember having this discussion with one of my professors. Well, if stare decisis, this doctrine of precedence, is so important why is it that precedent-setting cases get overturned? And, and, and the answer essentially was, well, precedence is really important, and it's good until it's not. And in point of fact, uh, you know, I mean, you can go online, and the Library of Congress keeps a sort of running tab of all Supreme Court cases, and they track the number of, of precedents that of the Supreme Court in which they've reversed themselves. It numbers beyond 230 since the year 1810. Now, granted, some of them are modifications of precedent. 
So, for example, Casey modified the Roe precedent. Uh, other cases, a couple of dozen cases, have, have indeed been landmark cases that were just fundamentally wrong, like Plessy versus Ferguson that upheld uh, racial discrimination, profoundly wrong and racist, an, an abhorrent decision, but it stood for 58 long years. So, uh, I mean, there's ample common sense reason to stand by precedence until it's it's recognized as wrong. Would you agree? I would. And I think the balance that has to be kept here is, yes, precedent is important, but text matters more. We're dedicated to the rule of law, and our ultimate rule is the text of the Constitution, and judges ultimately should have fidelity to that. Now, precedent says we should respect what judges have said in the past. We should defer if we're not sure, or if it's unclear, or it's unworkable to do something different. That's the cases where you do so. But to make precedent, as people did with Roe and Casey, something that can't be touched, something that is sacrosanct, is to put the will of the judges above the text of the Constitution and undermine the rule of law itself. And and precedent, uh, of course, is always a hot potato subject during confirmation hearings of nominees for the United States Supreme Court. Susan Collins, the uh, senator uh, from Maine, hauled off last Friday and uh, asserted that a couple of the Supreme Court justices, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, had lied during their confirmation hearings and in private conversations with her about respecting precedent. And then, of course, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, immediately jumped on it and said, grounds for impeachment, they should be impeached. You know, Jonathan Turley has has been very outspoken in reaction to all of that to say, wait a minute, you're embellishing, exaggerating, if not lying about uh, this this accusation that these justices were deceptive about uh, their, in their testimony. What, what say you? I think that it comes from a misunderstanding of what it means to respect precedent. Yes, they said they respect precedent. Yes, they said that Roe and Casey are strong precedents because of how long they've been standing, but they never said that precedent was an inexorable command that can't be changed. And I think that's why Alito's opinion went through such a painstaking analysis to show that while we respect precedent, this meets all the criteria to say it hasn't worked. And I would say that it, it, it's a little bit of double standard, given how these people, the same people celebrated the overturning of very important longstanding precedents in cases like Obergefell, uh, for example, or other cases where, you know, actually it was pointed out in Alito's opinion, every single justice that dissented upholding stare decisis in this case that just came out, Dobbs, has voted to overturn a precedent and an important and big one. So they don't think it's unchangeable. It just shows that abortion was playing by different rules, rules that were distorting all of our other views of precedent and was making us bend over backwards to say abortion is special and it gets special treatment when it comes to any other constitutional right. And that's just not the way the rule of law is supposed to work. And I think that Collins reading of what these justices said about 
precedent was trying to apply a special question begging rule to abortion as if it wasn't like every other part of constitutional laws, if it had to have this special elevated status above everything else. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, I've taken a look at some of the statements made by Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett uh, about precedent, respecting it in the context of raid of Roe versus Wade. And none of them pledged or guaranteed that they, you know, wouldn't overturn Roe. In fact, to do so would have uh, violated the Ruth Bader Ginsburg rule, wouldn't it? Yeah, that and what and, and the Ruth Bader Ginsburg rule, some people think it's self-serving, which means they don't tell how they would decide a case ahead of time, even in the hearings. But even if it is self-serving a bit that you can cloak your views, there is a good point to that. Judges are supposed to be impartial. They're supposed to wait till a particular case comes before them and then decide that's part of them being unelected at the federal level as they're supposed to be sort of above the regular partisanship so they can apply the rule of law without public pressure. And therefore, litigants want to believe that they might get a fair shake from these judges. And one way of doing that is for judges not maybe to talk about their principles of law, sure, but not say, well, if I ever got a case like this, I'm going to go after this side I don't like, or I'm going to make this opinion. And that would violate for, that would violate that principle, a reasonable principle, if they had gone in and given their opinion on how a case that hadn't come before them yet would be decided by them. Yeah, it, it, you'd be violating your judicial duty not to prejudge a case uh, before it comes before you. I mean, you know, that, that would be grounds for, you know, losing your black robe, for goodness sake. So I, I find it very hard to believe that even in private, any of these uh, now justices would have committed themselves to an outcome that would have just been fundamentally wrong. I think Susan Collins was hearing what she wanted to hear and reading into the comments in a way that she preferred and not as how they were meant. Um, one of the other things that struck me about um, the majority opinion written uh, by Samuel Alito was he foreclosed uh, the arguments and the fears of many who said, wait a minute, if you're reversing Roe, then aren't you really going to be eliminating other important rights involving contraception, same-sex marriage, and so forth? And he said, no, no, no. Those are different rights. And, and abortion is unique because it involves uh, a higher moral question of human life. Right. Yeah. Really, two things that he pointed out in trying to quell that assumption. One was it does involve a higher moral question and it involves another person, or at least it reasonably involves another person for the state to conclude that as opposed to uh, another person, I should add, that can't give their consent. Stuff like contraception or the definition of marriage involves consenting adults who can make a determination one way or another. This reasonably involves someone who is being acted upon and has no choice in the matter. So that makes it different. And the other is he wasn't saying that all of the problems 
that he painstakingly laid out that have attended the attempt to work, make Roe workable, the standards like undue burden that have proved completely bewildering, the rancor that has erupted and never gone away about the issue within the population, within the American people. It's not clear that that's going to be the case with the others. So it's not clear that there's even as strong of evidence to overturn the precedent if they were going to do the exact same analysis. And Justice Kavanaugh's opinion reinforced that. And I note that because right now, Justice Kavanaugh is the fifth vote in almost any controversial 5-4 case. And if he's saying that, I think you can say there's not much chance that the same analysis is going to play out for these other cases, at least not at the current time. Yeah. I mean, the lone justice uh, in his concurring opinion was Clarence Thomas, who said we should uh, or might re-examine substantive due process uh, of in a rights involving unenumerated rights and but he's the lone uh, you know voice on that and the others are not with him right yeah and he's been a solo justice on a number of things and I, I don't <laughs> think always wrong on everything he's been a solo justice on and he's very uh, assertive and I would say uh, uh, brave in the sense of he's willing to put his play his, his opinion out there but no no one joined the opinion this there's no sign that anyone else is on board with him so you're a long way away from a majority on on those kind of questions even when he brings it up so uh, I think that people trying to read too much into what he said aren't counting the votes. And what matters is not just the reasoning, but who joins the reasoning. And he's alone on that. So amid all of the the fury and frenzy and anger and the protests and so forth, the common question is, so what happens next? How do you answer that question? Yeah, I think there's several answers to that. One is that we have a return of federalism. The states are going to be the in the driver's seat as far as making lots of these decisions. The federal government will have some power, but the main power is going to be in the state level. Governor and state legislator elections are going to be very important. Um, I would also add on the electoral level, or not the electoral level, at the state level, that courts, state courts are going to be important. There are mm-hmm. going to be a lot of lawsuits from pro-choice groups trying to find a constitutional, a state constitutional right to abortion, trying to get little mini rows to reestablish those limitations and watch for that. Watch for how state courts are going to uh, adjudicate that. Kansas a few years ago already declared that its constitution supports a right to abortion, even if the U.S. doesn't. Iowa's Supreme Court just said, no, it doesn't. So that's going to be important. And you're going to see a challenge for the pro-life movement. They now have wide room to act. Are they going to be able to convince voters to make and keep the abortion restrictions that they believe are right, that protect the right to life? Or are pro-choice groups, even though they've lost in the court, going to be able to make that case to the American people? It's now in their hands. So I think that future is going to be very interesting to watch, starting with the midterms this fall. You know, some people have have said, well, Congress can pass a law codifying the right to abortion, very similar to what they did several weeks ago when they tried and failed uh, to do that. There weren't enough votes in the Senate. It went down 49-51. There's a couple problems with Congress, uh, you know, trying to pass uh, legislation absent a constitutional amendment. 
And one of them has to be the Dobbs decision itself handed down last Friday, because the court is making it abundantly clear we're, we're returning this particular right to the states to decide. And so if Congress tried to pass a law, wouldn't that be usurping the power of the states? And the question would be, on what basis would they claim they had the power? And most likely, they would try to do so on the Commerce Clause, right? that they have power over interstate commerce. But the majority of the court has already, most of them, been on record saying that that clause has been taken too far, that the national government has tried to do too much and tried to go too far in legislating in areas that the states should be able to do. You could see justices who may be personally pro-life even striking down a limit on abortion at the national level if they believe that it's just not the national government's job, it's the state's job to do so. So that that will be interesting going forward to see where, if abortion legislation comes out, what are they basing it on and what questions, not about whether abortion is just or unjust, but what questions about federalism and the separation of powers mandate leaving it to the states. So that will be a a question going forward as well. Let me turn my attention to, because as I mentioned in my opening remarks, there are two other cases that are really important. These three cases, the abortion case, the gun rights case, uh, and uh, the religious uh, prayer case, all came in succession, one after another, one after another. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the the most recent uh, prayer case. Uh, A coach uh, was essentially canned, sacked from his job because he uh, wanted to pray on the 50-yard line after a game. Students weren't forced to join him. They could if they wanted. They didn't have to if they didn't want to. Um, And the lower courts had said, well, this is a violation of the First Amendment Establishment Clause. This is essentially an act of government because it's a public school uh, endorsing religion. And in the Monday decision that that was handed down, you know, the court said, you know, you're taking this stuff too far. Um, And I'll quote here. um, It was Gorsuch who wrote the opinion that not just the Constitution, but, quote, the best of our traditions call for mutual respect, tolerance, not censorship and suppression for religious and non-religious views alike. Um, This restored common sense and sanity to the issue, didn't it? I think it did. And it showed that you can that yes the i think the founders wanted a separation of church and state as institutions we don't want a theocracy that that was clearly rejected but that that doesn't mean that religious persons don't have an equal right to participate in jobs and society with everyone else and in particular that that can include public displays of religious belief and it also means that People that work for the state, in this case, a coach working for uh, a high school, don't shed their constitutional rights to free speech or free exercise of religion merely because they work for the state. He did this not as a coach, but in his private capacity as an individual at a time when it was perfectly legitimate for people to be doing private things after a game. And so I think, again, you're right that this just restores some basic sanity to saying that the Establishment Clause isn't antagonistic to religion. It's actually another way of securing religious liberty, not 
coercing someone to never be able to display their faith. So the other decision involved the Second Amendment. Uh, New York had passed this law that basically said it shifted the burden uh, so that the gun owner had to prove that he or she is of good moral character and had a proper cause. And the Supreme Court said, wait a minute, that it, that's a ridiculously vague and ambiguous standard, and it gives a government official discretion to reject a gun permit for really any subjective reason at all, and that the presumption should always be in favor of the citizen who simply wants to defend him or herself. That, it seems to me, is a correct interpretation of the Second Amendment. What, what do you think? I think so. And that's where we shouldn't overstate what it decided. The case didn't say that there can't be reasonable gun regulations as far as if you have a criminal record right. or certain sensitive areas, as long as you don't define the whole world as a sensitive area and other considerations. So there, there's still ample room for sensible gun regulations. But the idea is you have a right to defend yourself. And it's not just in the home, as the court had said 12 years ago, and its precedents, it needs to be outside the home, because you still retain your right to protect yourself. And that this proper cause standard had been interpreted by the state of New York, where this case came out, as not just do you have a reasonable fear for your own safety, that general the general population had if there's too much crime in the area or you have a history of of you've been assaulted in the past or something like that you have to prove concretely that someone's going after you in a way that was almost impossible for anyone to prove right. and i think the the other thing you said about the standard where this is going to be big going forward is as you said the court said you have been deferring way too much state uh, or uh, federal courts to the state state regulations, you need to have a presumption that a law-abiding regular citizen has a right to self-protect in this way, and then the state is going to have to prove why it can't do so. That's a watershed change in how this has been interpreted in lower courts and I think is going to make a big difference for the Second Amendment going forward. Clarence Thomas, who wrote the uh, majority opinion, um, waited until page 62 uh, to repeat, actually, a vital point that the Second Amendment is not a second-class right. I happen to be watching another network, and the legal analyst threw a hissy fit as if that's some new and magical principle. No, it's not. <laughs> if the analyst had actually read page 62, he would have noted that Thomas uh, put that comment, second-class writing quotes. It was drawn from the McDonald case 12 years ago. So that's it has been a 12-year-old principle that the right to bear arms for self-defense is a primary right, correct? It is. It should be equal with other rights. In some ways, this is the, the opposite of Roe. Roe had made the abortion right above and beyond all other rights. The Second Amendment and the way it had been treated over the last 12 years had been treated, as Justice Thomas says, as a second-class right. It had gotten less protection than free speech, than rules against cruel and unusual punishment or illegal searches and seizures. And his argument was they're all in the Constitution. Nothing in the Constitution says that the Second Amendment is less than the others. All we're trying to do is bring it up in line with the rest of the Constitution. So we're treating the texts 
equally and applying rights equally, not trying to make special favors based on our policy preferences. All right, Professor Adam Carrington, Professor of Politics and Constitutional Law at Hillsdale College. Uh, You write a lot of columns for National Review, Washington Examiner, and others. We look forward to reading them. Thanks so much for joining us on The Brief to discuss these three cases. Appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And that's The Brief. Thanks for joining us. I'm Greg Jarrett. 